Hey there, all you true crime fans. I'm Amanda. And I'm Corey. And welcome back to Colorado Crime. Thank you all for joining us for part two of the Columbine Massacre. Again, there will be no joke this week. Today, we will take a walk through the timeline of events. We will be discussing some very difficult topics like guns in school, mental health, suicide, bullying, and the murders of children. As always, listener discretion is advised. On the morning of April 20th, 1999, the boys woke up at 5 a.m. to begin their master plan. Dylan was out of the house by 5.30 a.m. and was headed to meet Eric at a local grocery store to purchase the last of the propane tanks needed for the bombs. Two tanks were meant for the boys' cars, two for the cafeteria, and two for the decoy they planted roughly three miles from school. The decoy was intended to detonate first, causing police and fire to head away from the school, causing a delay in first responder arrival. The boys went back to Eric's house, where their arsenal was waiting for them in his closet. The boys recorded a final goodbye of sorts and got into their gear. The boys then gathered their guns and smaller explosives and made their way to the high school one final time. At 11.10 a.m., Eric pulled into the parking lot of the school. Dylan had already parked his bomb-loaded BMW near the cafeteria and was waiting for Eric. A now friend of Eric's, Brooks Brown, saw Eric arriving and questioned why he wasn't at school. Eric and Brooks had a psychology test that morning, and it wasn't like Eric to skip school. It was his last kind gesture before any and all kindness would be forgotten and he would become the monster we know him as today. He told Brooks, quote, it doesn't matter anymore. Brooks, I like you. Now, get out of here and go home. Brooks shook his head but kept walking, feeling the interaction was strange but not uncommon for the emotional roller coaster he was used to from Eric. Shortly after 11.14 a.m., the boys entered the full cafeteria to place their explosive-filled duffel bags among the other backpacks. Not one of the 500 students in the cafeteria noticed the boys doing anything strange. Once outside, the boys clad themselves with their weaponry. Each boy carried a semi-automatic firearm as well as a shotgun, knives, and their backpacks full of pipe bombs. By this time, the decoy bomb should have detonated, and as far as the boys knew, police and fire were en route. The boys then set the times for the bombs inside their vehicles to detonate and waited for chaos to ensue. By 11.18 a.m., the school was still standing. No one had come running out, and the boys realized the plan they had worked so hard on was not going to come to fruition. There was no turning back for them. The boys were committed to the murder they craved. This was no longer going to be a bombing. This was now going to be a hands-on, torture-filled shooting. At 11.19 a.m., the same time the decoy bomb was reported via 911, the boys were observed by the West Cafeteria exit. Together, the boys opened their backpacks, pulled out their shotguns, loaded their semi-automatic weapons. A battle cry of go-go was heard, and the boys opened fire on the unsuspecting students. Rachel Scott, who was just 17, and her friend Richard Castaldo were the first to be shot. The friends were eating lunch on the grass outside of the cafeteria. Eric shot Richard in the arm and torso. Rachel was shot in the head and chest. Rachel died that day on the grass while her friend Richard laid there in agonizing pain, bleeding from his wounds, pretending to be dead. Daniel Rorbo was just 15. Lance Kirkland and Sean Graves were headed up the dirt path towards the stairs. 
They saw the gunman firing, but assumed it was a prank like so many others would that day. Their interest peaked, and so they rushed straight towards the shooters. Daniel made it halfway to the stairs. Eric turned and fired at him. A shot tore through Daniel's left knee. He stumbled and began to fall. Eric fired again and again. Lance tried to catch Daniel as he fell, but realized he had been hit in the chest, leg, and foot. Lance blacked out, but was still alive. Sean didn't realize he had been shot. He looked around. Both of his friends were on the ground. Dylan made his way down the hill toward him. Someone ran out of the cafeteria to help Sean, who ended up propped in the entrance. A janitor held Sean's hand, told him to play dead, and he would be back for him after he helped the other kids escape first. Five students who were sitting in the grass when the gunfire began ran for cover. Michael Johnson suffered several gunshot wounds, but was able to reach the outdoor athletic storage shed, where he took cover with others. Mark Taylor suffered a debilitating gunshot wound and fell to the ground, unable to flee with the others. Dylan stepped right over Sean's crumpled but still alive body and walked inside the cafeteria. By this time, the students in the cafeteria saw that this was no prank and panic ensued. Students were hiding under tables, fleeing up the stairs, but Dylan only aimed his gun at them, never actually firing. He then left to join Eric at the top of the external stairs. It is unclear why Dylan entered the cafeteria that time. Some speculated he was checking to see why the bombs did not detonate, but he never went near them and made no attempt to set them off. Some think that Eric actually sent Dylan inside to see how many people were inside. On his way back to Eric, Dylan walked up to Daniel Rohrbrohl and shot him at close range, killing him almost instantly. He shot Lance Kirkland at close range, but miraculously he survived. Eric began shooting down the stairs and hit Anne-Marie Holchalter as she fled to the cafeteria for safety. Dylan and Eric reunited. It was now 11.23 a.m. The boys killed two people and injured three others. Jefferson County Sheriff's Deputy Neil Gardner was the first officer on the scene. He pulled into the lot with lights flashing and siren blaring. Eric opened fire but missed all of the shots taken. Dylan did nothing. He stood there. Gardner took cover behind his police car. Eric's rifle jammed. As he fought to clear the chamber, Dylan fled into the school. Seconds later, Eric was firing again. It was a short burst, then he retreated inside. The students who remained in the cafeteria were hiding under tables. Teachers and custodians were trying to keep the students safe. Patty Nielsen, a teacher, saw the commotion outside and assumed the boys had toy guns and were filming a movie. She headed outside to tell the boys to knock it off when she was approached by Brian Anderson, who was coming to tell her that the boys had real weapons and the school was under attack. Brian did not see the boys while he frantically told Patty Nielsen what was happening and was still running outside when he did notice the boys. Brian was now trapped between the interior and exterior doors of the school. Eric saw this and shot at the doors. Glass fragments went flying, and Brian Anderson was shot in the chest, and Patty was hit by the flying glass. The students inside the cafeteria realized this was much more than just a senior prank and began to escape up the stairs. This was caught on the school's security footage. It was now 11.24 a.m. Eric had done most of the shooting. Jefferson County Sheriff deputies began to arrive on scene to try to figure out what was happening and where the threat was coming from. 
After Eric shot the glass doors where Patty and Brian were, Deputy Gardner began shooting at Eric, allowing the two to flee to safety despite their injuries. Eric turned hard to the right. The deputy thought for a moment that he had hit him until Eric returned gunfire. Then Eric's weapon jammed and he retreated into the school with Dylan. At 11.25 a.m., Patty Nielsen, who was now inside the library, called 911 to report that gunfire had been fired in a now infamous phone call. Gunshots can be heard and Patty is telling the students to stay hidden under the tables. Jefferson County 911. Yes, I'm uh, Columbine High School. There is a student here with a gun. He has shot out a window. I believe one of you. Uh, uh, Columbine High School. I don't know what's in my shoulder. Is it with just the last me too? What? Okay. Has anybody been injured? Yes. Okay. Yes. And the school is in a panic, and I'm in the library. I've got students down under the table, kids. Heads under the table. Um, kids are screaming. Some of the teachers, um, are you know trying to take control of it. We need police here. Okay. We're getting them there. Who is the student, ma'am? I do not know who the student is. Okay. I saw a student outside. I was in private home there, God. Okay. I was on high duty. I saw a gun. What's going on out there? And it said, that was probably for video protection. It's probably a joke. I said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And I went walking outside. I think he was damn. See what was going on. He turned the gun straight at us and shot. And my God, the window went out. And the kid standing there with me, I think he got hit. Okay. Something in my shoulder. Okay. We've got help on the way, ma'am. Yes, Okay. Oh, God. Stay in the line do we know where he's at? I'm sorry? Do we know where he's at? He, okay. I'm in the library. He's upstairs. He's right outside of here. He's outside? He's outside of this hall. Outside of a hall? Outside of the hall. Okay. Sorry. There are alarms and things going off. Yeah, smoke. My God, smoke is like coming into this room. Okay. okay. I've got the kids under the table here. I don't know what's happening in the rest okay. of the building. I've also got smoke in the building, but I don't know. I'm sure someone has to be calling 911. Yeah, somebody got a lot of people on. Okay. I want you to stay in the line with me. Like we need to know what's going on. Okay. Okay. I am on the floor. Okay. You've okay. got the kids in the there. Library. And I've got everything in the library on the floor. You've got to stay on the floor. Is there any way you can lock the doors? Um, smoke is coming in from out there. And I'm looking okay. The gun just went off my library door. Okay. I don't think I'm going to go out there. Okay. You can call them my high school. I got three children. Okay. We got it. Okay. okay. Um, okay. I'm not going to go to the door to shut the, the door. Okay. I've got the kids on the floor. Um, I got all the kids in the library on the... We have paramedics, we have fire, and we have police on route. Okay, sir? Okay. Okay. Yes. Just, I mean, Bye. he's... I, I don't know. Just, I can't know. believe he's not out of work. He just keeps shooting his Okay. Yeah, we've got a police officer on scene. Okay, I thought it was... Okay, just try and keep the kids in the library calm. Yeah. Is there any way you can block the doors so no one can get in? I do, I do not... Okay. I Yeah, I guess I can try to go, but I mean, I keep right outside that door. I'm afraid to go to the... That's okay. That's where he gets. I'm afraid okay. to go there. Okay. That's okay. Okay, I called the kids to get on the floor. I called them to get under the table. All of the children are on the floor under the table. Um, um, yeah, they're all under the table. Okay. And that, as long as we can just try and keep... No one's saying a word. Okay, as long as we can keep everyone there as calm as we can. Hi, Harrison, yelling out there going on right yeah, now. Yeah, we've got alarms going off now as well. Yeah, there's alarms. This room is filled with smoke. Okay. Okay. Keep everyone low to the floor. Uh -huh. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone's on the table. Everyone stay on the floor. Stay on the floor. Stay under the table. Call back. Wow. I think wake up.
Okay. I. I don't know. I. Okay. I know. I don't know. I didn't. I said, "What? What is that you got?" He was outside at the time, and 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 uh, I was on hold. It. The cow got. And he was like, "What? What? What? I do not know who the student was. I don't even I saw him. He's wearing black. He didn't look very large. Um, the male student. Um, he was out there shooting. It looked like he was climbing out and shooting. And somebody, I said, yes. "What is that?" Mm-hmm. I said, "What's going on out there?" They said, "Hey, cat guy, it's all over for video production. You know, they do these videos." Right. And the kids said, "Well, that's not, you know, a straight down a real gun." I was going out there to say no. Mm-hmm. And I went, "Why?" Oh my God, that was really bullshit. Okay. What's your name, ma'am? Patty? The boys, while inside the school, began shooting into empty classrooms, shooting lockers, and were reported to be laughing as they fired. Stephanie Munson and a friend left their classroom when they saw a teacher and several students running down the hall. The teacher yelled, quote, run, get out of the building, end quote. As Stephanie was fleeing, she was shot in the ankle, but was able to escape the building to a nearby park. Dylan was spotted by a student in the counseling office who was on the phone with her mom. She dropped the phone, hid in a nearby bathroom until she no longer heard shooting, and then came back to the phone and asked her mom to come get her. The mom stayed on the phone the entire duration, and the call took place between 11.23 a.m. and 11.26 a.m. Dylan was last seen running through the hall towards the library. Teacher Dave Saunder, who was on the second level, turned into the library hallway towards the sound of gunfire. As Dave passed the library entrance, he saw the shooters and turned to go back the way he came. Just as he was about to turn around the corner, he was shot. Dave Saunders crawled into a science hallway where he was helped down the hallway by another teacher. A group of students gathered around him and began to administer first aid. Two of the students with Dave Saunders were Eagle Scouts, Aaron Hansey and Kevin Starkey. They stayed with Dave until they were evacuated by law enforcement hours later. Both boys reported that Dave was stable when they left him and were shocked to hear that Dave Saunders, 47, succumbed to his injuries while waiting for medics. News media had arrived by this time, and live news coverage showed students running to safety, looking for friends, being checked for weapons, and having injuries evaluated. At 11.29 a.m., both boys entered the school library, which is located above the cafeteria, and yelled, Get up! There is some confusion about what was said after, but the shooters demanded that all the jocks stand up. When no one stood, one of the shooters was heard saying, Fine, I'll start shooting. Eric shot down the length of the counter, injuring Evan Todd with flying wood splinters. The shooters walked towards the windows and shot Kyle Velasquez. He was the only student not hiding under a table. Dylan shot him, killing him instantly. The boys then set down their backpacks and began shooting out the library windows toward law enforcement and fleeing students. Dylan removed his trench coat and Patty dropped the phone. There was no further communication with dispatch. Dylan shot towards a table where Daniel Steepleton, Mackay Hall, and Patrick Ireland were hiding. As Patrick attempted to administer first aid to his friends, he was shot again. 
Meanwhile, Eric shot Stephen Kernow, 14, the youngest victim of Columbine, in the neck with his shotgun, killing him instantly. Casey Ruschager was injured as he crouched next to Stephen. Eric then headed to another table, bent down, and saw two terrified girls. He slapped the table twice and said, Peekaboo, and then he shot and killed Cassie Bernal, 17, with his shotgun. It was during this time that Eric was heard saying that he hit himself in the face. Investigators believe the kick from the gun actually broke his nose. Eric then turned to Brie Pasquale, who was sitting on the floor because there was not enough room under the nearby table. Harris asked her if she wanted to die. As she pleaded for her life, she observed blood flowing from his nose. She later said that Eric seemed disoriented for a moment, but was able to refocus when Dylan called his attention to another table which two boys were hiding. One of the boys Dylan announced was black. Bree also recalled Eric laughing and saying, quote, everyone's going to die. We're going to blow up the school anyway, end quote. Eric and Dylan stood at opposite ends of the table. Dylan was reportedly making racial slurs and began grabbing Isaiah Scholes, who was 18, in an effort to pull him from under the table. Eric fired under the table, killing Isaiah. Dylan followed suit, firing under the table and killing Matthew Ketcher. Eric threw a small CO2 cartridge under the table where Mackay Hall, Daniel Steepleton, and Patrick Ireland were. Mackay grabbed the cartridge and threw it away from everybody, where it exploded. Eric then went further into the room and jumped on bookshelves. He then began shaking them and swearing. Eric began shooting aimlessly again until both boys began to leave the library. On their way out, Dylan shot out a display cabinet and then fired towards another table, injuring Mark Kinchin. He then turned to another table and fired shots at Valine Schnur and Lisa Kreitz. Both girls were injured. Dylan then proceeded to fire as quickly as possible and killed valedictorian Lauren Townsend, who was 18. Valine, who was critically hurt, began to cry out, Oh God, help me. Dylan heard this and came back to her to taunt her about her belief in God. Eric fired under another table, injuring Nicole Nolan and John Tomlin. John Tomlin, who was just 16, came out from under the table and was shot and killed by Dylan. Eric went to the table where Kelly Fleming, who was just 16, was hiding and killed her. He again shot Lauren Townsend and Lisa Kreitz, also wounded Gina Park. Eric noticed a student and asked him to identify himself, which he did. It was high school senior John Savage. Dylan knew him. They were friendly. John asked Dylan what he was doing, and he responded, quote, Oh, just killing people, end quote. John asked, quote, Are you going to kill me? End quote. Dylan responded, No, dude, just run. Just get out of here. For some reason, the shooter spared John in a room where 10 other students were murdered. Eric went to another table where he shot and killed Daniel Moser, 15. He shot under another table and injured Jennifer Doyle, Austin Eubanks, and killed Corey DePooter, 17. Corey was the last killed in the attack. He died at 11.35 a.m. The gunmen went around the counter and found Evan Todd hiding. The boys taunted Evan and discussed whether or not to kill him. Instead, the boys walked away, sparing Evan. 
The boys exited the library at 11.36 a.m. They had been inside for seven and a half minutes. In that time, they killed 10 students and injured 12 more. There was a total of 56 people inside the library while the shooters went in and handpicked their victims one by one. The boys came prepared with enough ammo to kill each and every one of them. When the gunman left, the library was filled with smoke and the fire alarms were blaring. The students' ears were ringing, the injured were moaning, and yet almost all of them described it as eerily quiet. The gunfire had stopped. The gunman's taunts and laughter had stopped. Slowly, the students began to move, not all at once as a group, but one by one or in small groups of two or three. They moved when their fear of staying became bigger than their fear of moving. Patrick Ireland, who slipped in and out of consciousness, slowly made his way to the west window and fell out into the arms of SWAT at 2.38 p.m. Lisa Kretz, at the, the last of the wounded, was rescued when SWAT entered the library at 3.22 p.m. Lisa was transported to Denver Health Medical by 3.37 p.m. Explosions were still being reported throughout the school. Eric and Dylan went to the cafeteria where their faulty bombs were located. Eric was seen on security footage kneeling over a railing to shoot at one of the bombs. The cafeteria was full of backpacks at this time, but Eric seemed to know exactly which one contained the homemade bombs. Dylan could be seen on the same footage walking over to the bombs and attempting to detonate them. The boys then began to walk around the cafeteria and drink from abandoned lunches. A witness who was hiding in the cafeteria reported hearing one of the boys say, quote, Today the world is going to come to an end. Today is the day we die. End quote. The boys remained in the cafeteria for two and a half minutes. As the boys left, there was a partial detonation of a bomb. Four more students escaped from the cafeteria. At 11.49 a.m., the shooters were in the school office. The boys again wandered the hallways of their high school, shooting aimlessly, laughing, plotting. Between 11.53 a.m. and 11.55 a.m., dispatch gave the command post a description of one of the shooters. Eric Harris, 5'10", thin build, shaved blonde hair, pants, and a white t-shirt, light blue gym backpack. At 11.56 a.m., Eric and Dylan were seen entering the cafeteria again. At 11.57 a.m., Eric and Dylan were seen on security footage standing in the cafeteria, surveying the destruction they caused. The boys left the cafeteria and headed towards the kitchen area. At 11.59 a.m., the boys were seen leaving the kitchen area. And at 12 p.m. noon, the boys were making their way back to the library. Between 12.02 p.m. and 12.05 p.m., the boys shot towards officers from the library windows. At 12.06 p.m., the first SWAT team arrived. Sometime between 12.05 p.m. and 12.08 p.m., Eric and Dylan decided to end their rampage and shoot themselves in the library of their high school. A smoke alarm was triggered at 12.08 p.m. It was later discovered that the gunmen's bodies were directly under this alarm, and that's what gave the investigators the time of death. Eric Harris, 18, at the time of the murders. Eric Harris was 18 at the time of the murders. His cause of death was a single gunshot wound to the head. Dylan Klebold was 17 at the time of the murders. His cause of death was also a single gunshot wound to the head. The boys entered their high school that day with no intention of leaving alive. They spared Colorado taxpayers the cost of their trials, but 
denied the families of their victims any and all answers to why their family members were targeted. If you scroll through the history books, you'll see that 175 people have been killed in school shootings. 175 people have been shot and killed in school. 175 in school. This is not an issue that will go away on its its own. Whether we agree politically or not, we can all agree that this has, has to stop. How we do that needs to have some serious thought put into it. I know how I would fix the problem. Amanda knows how she would fix the problem. As a society, we need to come together and make that decision for the sake of our children and our educators. Mark Maines, the man who sold the gun to Harris and bought him 100 rounds of ammunition the day before the murders, was sentenced to six years in prison. Another man, Philip Duran, who introduced Harris and Klebold to Mans, was also sentenced to prison time. Dylan Klebold's prom date admitted on Nationwide TV that she bought him and Eric Harris three of the four guns they used in the Columbine High School attack, but denied knowledge of the deadly plan. Robin Anderson said on Good Morning America she didn't know why Harrison Klebold asked her to buy the weapons, but she regrets not pressing them harder for an explanation. I wish that I had known more, Anderson, 18, said. I wish that I had questioned more. I wish now that I had gone, hadn't had gone with them that I would have said, I feel uncomfortable. Maybe you could find somebody else. Anderson was sued by several of the victims' families. After the shooting, several homemade videotapes were recovered that showed Eric and Dylan preparing for NBK. In the last entry, the boys said their final farewells and made sure to thank their friends who helped procure the weapons used. On the tape, Harris says, quote, Oh, I'd like to make a thank you to Mark and Phil. Very cool. You helped us do what we needed to do. Thank you. End quote. But he also says, in what is apparently a message to police, quote, don't arrest any of our friends. Don't arrest any of our coworkers. Don't arrest any of our family members. Don't arrest anyone because they didn't have a fucking clue, end quote. Duran pleaded guilty to supplying minors with a handgun and illegally possessing a sawed-off shotgun. He was sentenced to four and a half years in prison in June of 2000. Mark Manns, who sold the semi-automatic handgun, pleaded guilty to a similar charge and was sentenced to six years in prison. One positive change that was implemented after the massacre was Colorado launched Safe to Tell. It's a phone number, website, and an app on which anyone can anonymously report a concern or threat. Wyoming has adopted it, and similar programs are in place in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Nevada, among several other states. We want to take the remainder of our episode to memorialize the 13 victims the world lost that tragic day 24 years ago, as well as the surviving victims. The following information was taken from www.acolumbinesite.com. This was a great source for information regarding the victims. Rachel Scott was born August 5, 1981, and was just 17 years young when she was murdered. Rachel was a vibrant and straightforward individual. She wasn't afraid to stand up for what she believed in, no matter what. She played the lead in the student-written school play, The Smoke in the Room, co-starring friend Nick Baumgarter, Lauren Beecham, and others, and was writing a play for her senior year. She also liked photography and was active in the Celebration 
Christian Fellowship Church. She was made for the camera, according to her father, Daryl, and was an inspiring writer and actress. There's nothing I can add or take away from what she gave us, her mom, Beth, said. In those short 17 years, it was complete. After her death, Rachel's car was turned into a makeshift memorial by her friends where it sat in the parking lot. In my eyes, she was just one of those kinds of people you know you won't ever meet again, Rachel's friend Lauren Beecham said of her. She was the kind of person only born once. Daniel Lee Rohr Bow was born March 2nd, 1984. He was just 15 years young when he was murdered. He enjoyed electronics and computer games. He was looking forward to getting his driver's permit soon. He was remembered as a fun guy. He helped in his father's stereo business every day after school, and during the summer, he worked on his grandfather's farm, harvesting wheat as he had done since he was three. He used the money he earned to buy Christmas presents for his family. Daniel was headed out of the cafeteria that morning with friends Lance Kirkland and Sean Graves when the shooters opened fire down the grassy knoll outside the school's west entrance. He bled to death on the sidewalk outside the school where he lay for nearly two days before paramedics were allowed to move him. The Rohrbos were kept in the dark about what happened to their son. Law enforcement told them they didn't know for certain that the body on the sidewalk was Dan and that wouldn't let the family in to check for themselves. It wasn't till the morning after the shootings that the Rohrbos found out for certain what they already knew in their hearts. Danny was indeed the dead boy outside, and they learned this news because it was splashed all over the morning news and was not because the family was told directly by officials. There was even more controversy over Daniel's death when Arapahoe County Deputy James Taylor, who had been a friend of the Rohrbos family, told Danny's parents that the boy may have been killed by friendly fire from a Denver SWAT team member. Lawsuits and independent investigations have confirmed that Dan died from the shot fired by Eric Harris, but it was never made clear whether or not Danny was hit in the crossfire by a bullet from law enforcement. The family later sued Taylor, who was suspended from the force. Additionally, there was initial confusion over which gunman was the one to have killed Danny. The Columbine report states that it was Dylan Klebold who fired the fatal shot, but an independent investigation by the El Paso County Sheriff's Department determined that it was Eric Harris's weapon that was responsible. He was known in the media reports later as the boy who held the door open for his friends, allowing them to escape from the school during the assault. It's a very heroic notion, but like many of the stories of martyrdom during a crisis, it doesn't seem to be supported by witness statements entered into the official reports that followed the investigation of the shootings. But whether or not he did or didn't, all of the people who knew him could agree on one thing. Danny was a wonderful young man and he would be sorely missed. Shortly after learning of his death, Dan's mother, Sue Patrone, started lo a load of laundry in order to just do something normal and came across Daniel's shirt and socks. The little things just bring back the horror of the fact that he's not with us anymore, she said. She didn't often see Dan in the mornings before his death, but that last morning they managed to come together for a brief chat that ended it with a hug and a kiss and her telling him she loved him. It was the last time she saw him alive. William Dave Sanders was born on October 22, 1951, and was just 47 years old when he was murdered. Dave Sanders was a computer and business teacher at Columbine for 25 years and coach of the girls' basketball and softball teams. He left behind his wife, four children, and five grandchildren. 
His students said he was a teacher, a friend, a mentor, and an inspiration. When the gunman started firing outside the school, he ran to the cafeteria and sounded the alarm. He, along with two of the school's janitors, helped get more than 100 students out of the path of danger by herding them away from the shooters. He saved untold numbers of lives that day. Dave's daughter Angela said at his funeral, What you did in that school on Tuesday was an amazing act of heroism. You continued to be the brave, selfless man we all know you are. Kyle Albert Velasquez was born May 5, 1982, and was just 16 years young when he was murdered. Neighbors and relatives said Kyle Velasquez enjoyed chores and family activities. They said he was a gentle giant. He was six foot tall and 230 pounds when he died, but those who knew him knew that he was a little boy at heart. Affectionate and sincere, he loved nothing more than helping his dad, Al, around the house, putting up shelves, mowing the lawn, washing the car. Every day, he would kiss his mom, Phyllis, on the cheek and tell her that he loved her. He dreamed of joining the Navy like his dad or becoming a firefighter. When Kyle was just a baby, he suffered a stroke that left him mentally disabled, and he also had severe asthma. As a special needs child, Kyle was often ignored, avoided, and teased while growing up. He knew what it was like to be an outcast. Due to his disabilities, Kyle's parents had prepared to spend the rest of their lives with him. He would accompany his mother everywhere while she ran her errands. Kyle's last words to her were, Goodbye, I love you, Mom. A shy teen, Kyle had only been attending Columbine for three months and was just beginning to come out of his shell when the massacre occurred. It was only a few weeks that he was staying at the school through lunch, and a few weeks earlier, he would have been on his way home that the day the shooting started. Kyle loved computers. He had been sitting at one of the computer tables in Columbine's library when the killers came in, perhaps too confused or frightened by the chaos and noise to hide himself. Stephen Robert Kernow was born on August 28, 1984, and was the youngest victim in the Columbine Massacre. He was just 14 years young when he was murdered. Stephen dreamed of being a Navy Top Gun pilot and was very close with his mom, Susan, and father, Robert. He loved soccer and worked part-time as a referee, and his dad, Bob, coached the soccer team, the Blue Devils of the Colorado Rush. Steve liked the color green because it was the color of the field. His favorite classes were Spanish, technology, and gym because he got to play sports. Remembered as a huge fan, he watched the Star Wars movies so many times he could recite the dialogue along with the actors. Science fiction fans nationwide put together a go-to Star Wars Memorial Day in his honor when Star Wars won The Phantom Menace premiered in theaters May 19, 1999. He had been anxiously awaiting its release. His sister Nancy said at the funeral that she was going to miss fighting with Steve over whose turn it was to take out the garbage and whose turn it was to use the computer. She wondered who would tell the stories to her own children about what she was like growing up. She'd been counting on her little brother for that. His mom wrote a note to Steve that was read at the funeral. Thank you for that special moment two weeks ago when you said, Mom, I bet there aren't many guys who can discuss things with their moms like we do. Cassie Renee Bernal was born November 8, 1981, and was just 17 years young when she was murdered. A born-again Christian as of 1997, she was active in the church youth programs and Bible study groups. 
Her parents called her Bunny Rabbit, and she loved to go rock climbing in Breckenridge. She had recently visited Great Britain, and her favorite movie was Braveheart. For a long time after the shootings, it was believed she was the girl in the library who was asked by one of the shooters, do you believe in God, and was subsequently shot because she said yes. There is still controversy surrounding this, according to the Columbine Report. Several witnesses claim that the conversation occurred between gunman Eric Harris and the surviving victim, Valene Schur. Valene herself has verified this fact. However, Joshua Lapp, a witness to the library shooting, said in his interview with investigators that shooters asked several people if they believed in God, and the answers given didn't seem to dictate who was shot or not. Cassie was buried in a white coffin that attendees at her funeral, her pastor called it a marriage to Christ, could sign. Her mom wrote, Bunny Rabbit, my friend, my buddy, my daughter, my mentor. I will love you and miss you forever. I promise to take good care of your kitty. I know that Jesus is elated to have you in his presence. Your courage and commitment to Christ have gained you a special place in heaven, and I am proud to call you my daughter. I love you so much, mom. Despite the fact that she likely didn't say anything to either of the gunmen, the story of the girl who said yes still inspires people all over the world, and her family prefers to think of her as that girl. Isaiah Eamon Scholes was born August 4, 1980, and was just starting adulthood when he was murdered at 18 years young. Isaiah Scholes wanted to be a comedian and dreamed of becoming a music executive. After graduating, he wanted to attend an arts college. Friends nicknamed him Bushwick. Born with a heart defect, his parents said he was a fighter who overcame his disability and went on to play football and wrestle. He had played cornerback the previous year on the football team, but his father claimed he quit, possibly because of racial intimidation. Isaiah also played keyboards and wanted to become a record producer like his father Michael, who was the president of Notorious Records and Fort Knox Entertainment, a firm Michael started to promote Black musicians in the Denver area. After graduation, Isaiah had planned to attend the Denver Institute of the Arts. Isaiah was a popular boy. Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis said his classmates would compete to work on school projects with him. Isaiah Scholes, thank you for having such a positive impact on our school and on our family. You will be greatly missed, and I love you, my dear child, he said at Isaiah's funeral. He's smiling down on us, classmate and friend Nick Foss said. I know he is. Matthew Joseph Ketcher was born February 19, 1983, and was just 16 years old when he was murdered. Matt was a sturdy 210-pound sophomore. He played on both the offensive and defensive lines of the football team. He is remembered for his ready laugh. He was a weightlifter and an A student, always getting good grades in school. When I heard he was one of the ones from the library, it only made sense, said sophomore basketball player and close friend Greg Barnes. He was always in the library studying. He always put academic first. He had straight A's, but he never bragged about it. I kind of looked up to him because of it. He was never in a bad mood, and he was consistently happy. Tragically, Greg committed suicide shortly following the first anniversary of the shootings at Columbine. The University of Colorado, where Matt had planned to attend, sent his younger brother Adam one of their jerseys bearing Matt's name and the jersey number he wore, 70, as a part of the Columbine's team. The Columbine High School football team all wore ribbons bearing his old jersey number, and they were asked to dedicate the next season to Matt's memory at his funeral service. 
In September of 1999, Matt Ketcher was posthumously accepted into the National Honor Society. Lauren Don Townsend was born January 17, 1981, and was just 18 years young when she was murdered. Lauren was a senior and captain of the varsity volleyball team, which her mother, Don Anna, coached. She was a member of the National Honor Society and was a candidate for the valedictorian of her graduating class. Lauren was a talented sketch artist as well. Nicknamed Lulu, she was a straight-A student. She never got a B. She volunteered at a local animal shelter and had planned to major in biology at Colorado State University when she graduated from Columbine. Her funeral was held at Foothills Bible Church, where her brother Josh played a tribute video filled with moments from her life. Many of her teachers spoke at her funeral, commending her gentle nature and loving spirit, as well as her academic excellence. Her coffin was a white one that people attending her funeral could write on, much like one would sign a yearbook. Her father wrote, Lulu, you'll always be my baby. John Robert Tomlin was born September 1st, 1982, and was just 16 years young when he was murdered. John Tomlin was a native of Wisconsin. He worked after school at a local nursery hauling trees and belonged to a church church youth group, where he met his girlfriend of seven months, Michelle. Family and friends remember his energy and the warmth of his smile. He loved church and Chevrolet trucks. He had recently got his driver's license and had just bought an old Chevy pickup that he had been working on since he was 14. He once drove all the way to Mexico to help build a house for a poor family. He enjoyed four-wheeling in his truck and lifting weights. His truck, like Rachel Scott's car, became a standing memorial in the parking lot. Thursday, following the shootings, his family gathered around the truck, despite the fact that it was raining. His Bible was still sitting on the dashboard where he always left it, in the hope that someone would see something there that would bring them closer to God. He was the perfect son, said his father, John Michael Tomlin. He was just good. You'd ask him to wash a car, and he'd wash all the cars. Kelly Ann Fleming was born January 6, 1983. She was just 16 years young when she was murdered. Kelly and her family moved to Littleton from Phoenix, Arizona, 18 months before the shooting. Her father, Don, said they scoured the area looking for a good neighborhood where their daughters would be safe. Kelly was a shy and creative girl who loved Halloween and was an aspiring songwriter and author who wrote many poems and short stories based on her life experiences. She had been writing an autobiography on her computer. She started when her mom's water broke and had gotten as far as her fifth year. She often went to Columbine's library to write. Her stories often had happy endings. Kelly was learning to drive and wanted to get a job at a daycare center and save enough money to buy a Mustang or a Corvette. She longed to be able to drive so she could return to Phoenix for a visit or go on a road trip. She loved to read, especially books about vampires. One day, she hoped to be a published author and often entered writing contests. Her mother, Dee, remembered Kelly coming home from school two months before the shooting, saying, I'm not shy anymore. Kelly's funeral was held at the same time as Daniel Moser's at the St. Francis Cabrini Catholic Church. She was buried with two teddy bears in her arms. 
Daniel Connor Moser was born June 25, 1983. He was just 15 years young when he was murdered. Daniel was a sophomore who excelled at math and science and got straight A's on his last report card. His dad, Tom, remembered his son as a smart young man who wasn't afraid of challenges and who wasn't ashamed to hug his parents. He attended King Carroll Middle School, the same school the shooters went to, but there's no record of them knowing each other. Daniel was shy, but he didn't let that stop him from joining the debate team, and though he wasn't a natural athlete, he still joined the cross-country team. He liked to ski, camp, and recently returned from a two-week trip to Paris with the French club. He had received straight A's in his classes for the last two grading periods and won the Stretch for Excellence Award for being named the top biology student of the sophomore class at Columbine High. Sadly, he died before he could learn that he had been selected for that honor. Daniel was also posthumously accepted for a membership into the National Honor Society in September of 1999. He had applied for the membership weeks before the shootings. Daniel was described by his family as a shy, gentle soul, lovable and loving. He was close friends with his sister, Christine. Daniel liked pepperoni pizza, playing video and computer games, and watching shows like The Simpsons and The X-Files. Daniel was fond of trivia and knowledge games, as well as swimming and hiking. His father had hoped that in the summer of 1999 to take Daniel on his first 14er. His funeral was jointly held with Kelly Fleming's at the St. Francis Cabrini Catholic Church. Not long after the shootings, Daniel's family, along with several other families of the shooting victims, learned that the school district was planning to reopen the library where Daniel and the others had died. The plan was to make cosmetic changes such as removing the carpet, repainting, replacing bullet riddled shelves. Upset by the notion, the Mosers, along with several other parents and volunteers, founded Hope, Healing of People Everywhere, and together they convinced the district to tear out the old library and replace it. Corey Tyler DePooter was born on March 3, 1982, and was just 17 years young when he was murdered. Corey was a former wrestler who loved to hike, golf, hunt, and fish. He loved wrestling, golf, and inline skating, but fishing was his passion. He had recently taken a maintenance job at a golf club to save up to buy a fishing boat with a friend. Someone Corey used to fish with said, It was the times we didn't do well that his personality really shined. Another friend said of him, When you're going fishing or camping, I know he's going to be there, watching and making sure you're doing everything right. He was described as an all-American kid who put schoolwork above everything else. He had his wisdom teeth removed that year and was upset that the procedure had forced him to miss school. He was hiding under a table near the window with his best friend Stephen Austin Eubanks and surviving victim Jennifer Doyle when the shooters entered the library. While his friend Austin watched, Dylan Klebold aimed his semi-automatic at Corey and pulled the trigger, killing him almost instantly. Austin Eubanks later said about Corey, People said he was the kind of guy people like to be around. I know I sure did. Corey was always able to pick our spirits up in a gloomy situation. His funeral was held at Trinity Christian Center. Soon after his death, his grandmother, Fern Hamilton, contacted the Marine Corps about holding some sort of ceremony for Corey because he'd always wanted to become a Marine. On May 3, 2000, Corey was granted the dream 
during a ceremony at his gravesite where he was made an honorary Marine. Now we are going to go through the list of the injured. Brian Anderson, 17, in 1999. Brian was treated for injuries sustained from bullet fragments bouncing off a shattered window when Eric shot through the double-paned west entrance doors. He was released April 20, 1999. He graduated from Columbine May 20, 2000. Brian still tries to make sense of that fateful day at Columbine High School. To this day, he has not stepped one foot in any library, nor does he like the sound of helicopters or fire alarms. Brian also stated that there is one person that means a lot to him and will always have a place in his heart because in his eyes, she is a hero, and that is teacher Patty Nielsen. Nicole Nolan was 16 in 1999. Nicole was hit with nine pieces of buckshot. Three were through and through. Doctors were able to remove only one of the remaining six. The other five are still in her midsection. She was released April 21st, 1999. She went back to Columbine after she recovered, refusing to let Eric and Dylan win by chasing her out of her school. Evan Todd, 15, in 1999. Evan Todd was the last of the survivors to be identified. He was list listed in Littleton papers as the unnamed boy. He returned to Columbine when he was well enough and went on to play for the Columbine Rebels state championship football team. He also held a 27-10 wrestling record on the varsity squad and made Eagle Scout in 2000. He was planning on t attending college and to pursue a career as a federal law enforcement officer. Stephen Austin Eubanks was 16 in 1999. When the shooters finally left the library, Austin and the other survivors under the table got up and ran outside where they were met by police officers. Austin was treated for a gunshot wound to the hand and a bullet grazed knee. He was released from the hospital the same day and graduated from Columbine High School on May 20, 2000. Nicholas Nick Foss was 18 in 1999. Nick was treated for slight injuries sustained in the 15-foot fall through the ceiling and a bullet that grazed his head. Released April 20, 1999, he told investigators later that he felt as though angels were watching over him that day because one of the killers pointed a gun at his head, but it didn't go off when the shooter pulled the trigger. He graduated from Columbine in May 1999. Joyce Jankowski was 45 in 1999. Joyce was treated for injuries sustained in the fall through the ceiling when she tried to escape the school and was released April 20, 1999. Adam Kyler was 16 in 1999. Adam was in the cafeteria when the shooting began. He told investigators later that fellow victim Kyle Velasquez had been sitting at his table some time before the shooting began. Adam heard Coach Dave Saunders yell for the students to get down while the shooters opened fire. Adam then heard popping noises and turned to look and saw Dylan Klebold coming through one of the doors on the south wall. When he heard three or four shots come from the area near Klebold, Adam got up and ran towards the kitchen. Just before he reached the serving line, Adam was hit with a chair in the ribs. He got back to his feet with the help of his friend, Dusty, and the two of them ran towards the kitchen. Adam ran, went into the storage area, while Dustin ran back toward the west side of the cafeteria where he pulled the fire alarm and ran out. Adam went to hide in the kitchen. 
Adam and 18 other people stayed hidden in the kitchen where they barricaded the doors. At one point, they heard the doors rattle, but the sound soon stopped when whoever was on the other side couldn't get in. They stayed there for several hours, able to talk to the Denver police from a phone in there. They stayed there till the SWAT team told them to get to the bathroom, where they were then evacuated by way of the staff lounge. When authorities asked Adam how he knew Dylan, Adam told them that Dylan had begun harassing him at school around November and December of 1998. It got so bad that Adam's mother, Susan, reported it to the school authorities, who said they would take care of the problem. There were no further issues with Klebold after that. When the Kylers reported Dylan back then, Adam had told investigators that Dylan had been with a group of four kids in black trench coats that had told him near Christmas 1998 that they would kill him if he went to class, and that if he told anybody about the threats, they would shoot him. He also said at the time these students were part of a group known as the Trenchcoat Mafia. However, in later interviews with officials, he said he hadn't had any problems with any of the other Trenchcoat Mafia students except for Dylan during the harassment. He said then that while Dylan was harassing him, three other students believed to be the Trenchcoat Mafia members were with Dylan, but they weren't actually involved in the harassment. Susan told investigators that Adam had a learning disability and that she believed it to be the reason Dylan had harassed her son. He was treated for abdominal pain and was released April 20th, 1999. Stephanie Munson was 17 in 1999. Stephanie had just started attending Columbine four months prior to the shootings. She and her younger sister Jennifer designed a commemorative Columbine stuffed bear made available shortly after the shootings to raise money for other victims. One of the bears was put inside the shuttle Endeavor for an 11-day mission before it was presented back to Stephanie. Patricia Patty Nielsen was 35 in 1999. Patty was the teacher who called 911 from the library. She was able to escape the school, escorted by police. She ran south to Pierce Street, where she was treated for her injuries, including a grazing wound to the shoulder from a bullet. She was then taken to the hospital, where she was treated and released April 20th of 1999. Jennifer Doyle was 17 in 1999. Jennifer was hit with three shotgun pellets in her right hand. One crushed her ring finger, another entered her wrist, and another entered the back of her hand resulting in seven broken bones. Released from the hospital April 24, 1999, Jennifer now has a metal plate and screws holding her ring finger together. She graduated from Columbine High School on May 20, 2000. She went on to the University of Colorado in the fall. Daniel Steepleton, 17, in 1999. He was treated for a shotgun blast to the leg. He took five pellets to the knee and one to the chin. He was released before April 24, 1999. Daniel graduated from Columbine, May 20, 2000. Mackay Hall was 19 in 1999. He was treated for a shotgun wound to the right knee and shrapnel in the cheek. He underwent surgery and spent three days in the hospital. He was released April 23, 1999. He graduated from Columbine High School on May 20, 2000. Patrick Ireland was 17 in 1999. Patrick faded in and out of consciousness for two hours on the floor of the library. The fire alarm finally woke him up. His ears were ringing. He heard someone coughing, a sound that eventually stopped and didn't start again. If Pat had waited in the library for help, he likely would have died. 
He was treated for two gunshot wounds to the head and one to the right foot, as well as a laceration to his right inner elbow. He was later moved to Craig Hospital for spinal and cerebral rehabilitation. He returned to Columbine that fall, using a cane to help support his weight as he walked. On September 25, 1999, he was elected Columbine's homecoming king. He graduated from Columbine May 20, 2000 as co-valedictorian. In 2004, Jefferson County reached a $117,500 settlement with Patrick Ireland. The sheriff's office assumed no liability in the settlement, successfully ending the last federal case against Jeffco. In 2009, Pat was doing well for himself. He was working as a financial rep and had married his sweetheart, Casey. By 2012, he had two daughters and moved up to managing director for Northwestern Mutual Financial Network. That's when Sandy Hook shooting happened. He was still living with a bullet in his brain from the Columbine shooting. Michael Johnson was 15 in 1999. Michael was in intensive care for eight days, during which time doctors had to wire his jaw shut and repair a ruptured blood vessel in his leg. He was released April 20, 1999. Though doctors thought he might lose his leg at one point, Mike can now run and has held a job at the Mann Theater. His parents, Kathy and Gary, felt that though they went through a lot, the ordeal made them closer as a family. Casey Rugsager was 17 in 1999. Just months before the shooting, Casey had transferred to Columbine after two of her friends committed suicide and another had died of leukemia. Her parents wanted her to be in a more positive environment. She suffered multiple injuries, including a gunshot wound to the right shoulder, a through-and-through injury to her right hand that medical officials pulled a metal washer out of, and a gunshot graze on her neck. They pulled a shotgun wad out of her shoulder. At the hospital, she was given at least two doses of morphine and was still in quite a bit of pain. A steel plate was put in her arm, and she went through a lengthy physical therapy. She was released from the hospital May 1, 1999. She went on to attempt Colorado State University and had hopes of being an American Quarter Horse Association chapter champion in Denver once more, like she was before the shootings. Richard Castaldo was 17 in 1999. Richard was hit eight times in his left arm, right arm, chest, back, and abdomen. His lungs, kidney, and spleen were damaged, and one of his vertebrae was fractured between his shoulders, leaving him paralyzed from the chest down. He was moved from the Swedish Medical Center June 1, 1999, to Craig Hospital for spinal cord rehabilitation. He was released August 21, 1999. He was the last of the injured to be released from the hospitals. He remains in a wheelchair to this day. He got his driver's license in February of 2000 and drove a van modified for his wheelchair. He planned to attend Arapahoe Community College and expressed a desire to have a career as a sound designer in the game design field. He was featured in Michael Moore's Bowling for Columbine documentary, where he, along with Mark Taylor, managed to convince Kmart to stop selling ammunition. It came out later that Moore was less than honest with Richard and the other survivors regarding his intentions with the film. On January 31, 2002, the Olympic torch was passed along Pierce Street from survivor Patrick Ireland to Richard Castaldo and Columbine principal Frank DeAngelis. 
Mr. DeAngelis handed it off to John Tomlin Sr., father of victim John Tomlin. Sean Graves was 15 in 1999. His back spine injury was deemed an incomplete spinal injury by doctors, meaning that he was paralyzed below the injury level but retained some feeling and movement. He was later moved to Craig Hospital for spinal cord rehabilitation. On June 20, 1999, he took his first steps. He was released from Craig Hospital July 7, 1999. Sean told reporters that he used to have nightmares about being shot long before the attack on Columbine. Those nightmares stopped after the shooting. His home was rebuilt to accommodate the wheelchair he was using at the time, and donations from folks around the world paid for a home gym to assist for, with his personal therapy. Sean's father, Randy, purchased him a used pickup truck when Sean was 16 when the teen proved to his father he could get in and out of it unassisted. Sean get graduated from Columbine in 2002 using only a crutch to walk across the stage to receive his diploma. That same year, 20-year-old Sean went back to Columbine for the fifth anniversary of the tragedy. He planned to place a cigar on the ground where Danny died. Anne-Marie Hotchhalter was 17 in 1999. Anne-Marie was shot by Eric Harris once in the back and once in the chest. Paralyzed by a bullet that severed her spinal cord and went through her diaphragm, it was later found lodged in her liver. She collapsed, unable to move. She told investigators later that while she was playing dead, she could hear one of the gunmen shouting orders to the other, but couldn't understand what they were saying. If rescue workers had been two minutes slower in reaching her, she would have died. Doctors later called her the Miracle Girl. Anne-Marie was later moved from Swedish Hospital to Craig Hospital for spinal cord rehabilitation. She spent a total of four months in the hospital. At Craig Hospital, she underwent rehabilitative therapy with a fellow survivor, Patrick Ireland. She resumed school September 9, 1999, and took one physics class with him. Her family bought a house with wheelchair ramps and lifts with the help of the Colorado Home Builders Foundation. At age 18, she was attending Columbine part-time and helped out in the nurse's office, in addition to taking classes. She wanted to go on to community college once she graduated, but had planned to take the summer of 2000 off to be a teen, since she'd lost that time the previous summer. Despite the hope in Anne-Marie's letter, just two months later, her family was in the news again, following the death of her mother. Her mom, Carla Hotchhalter, had been struggling with depression for at least three years before the shooting. She had been hospitalized on September 16, 1999, after she went to the ER seeking help for her mental state. She was released October 14, 1999, to an outpatient program. On October 22, 1999, Carla entered Alpha Pawn Shop in Inglewood. She asked to see a gun and give it a dry fire to test it. While the clerk filled out Miss Hotchhalter's background check, Carla discreetly loaded the gun with bullets she brought in. She proceeded to shoot herself in front of six to ten witnesses. She was pronounced dead at the hospital. The Hotchhalter family later sued the hospital for failure to diagnose her as suicidal and for failing to keep her hospitalized. Her father, Ted, remarried a year after Carla's death, marrying one of the grief counselors he and Anne-Marie met. In 2000, 
Anne-Marie met with the media for an update. She still couldn't walk and was often in severe pain. Her mother's suicide had set back her rehabilitation, but she was making progress, slow, painful progress. She earned her business degree from the University of Colorado and bought a townhome in Westminster. Valine Val Schnur was 18 in 1999. There was some controversy for a while about who said yes for a long time. While the news contended Cassie Bernal was a martyr who was shot for answering yes when one of the shooters asked her if she believed in God, Joshua Lapp, one of the students who was in the library but uninjured, stated that the killers spoke to many students and asked more than one if they believed in God. What their answer was didn't seem to dis dictate whether or not they got shot. Attracted by Val's cries, the shooters both came over to where she was. One of the shooters, who was reloading his weapon at the time, then asked her if she believed in God. She floundered in her answer, saying no at first, then yes, trying to get the answer right. He asked her why, and she said it was because it was what her family believed. Valine crawled back under the table where she lay down and played dead until the shooters left the library. She then tried to wake Lauren, but when she couldn't, Val fled the library. She was one of the last to leave the library of those who could. Val suffered nine soft tissue wounds to her left arm, chest, and abdomen from shrapnel and through and through bullet wounds. She was released from Swedish Medical Hospital April 27th, graduated from Columbine May 22nd, 1999, despite her injuries. Jenna Park was 18 in 1999. Jenna was shot from behind. She was hit in the right knee, right shoulder, and left foot, and fell to the floor where she stayed until she noticed some of the other people in the library getting up and leaving. She was released from the hospital April 26, 1999. Jenna returned to Columbine where she, when she was well enough and graduated with honors May 23, 1999. Lance Kirkland was 16 in 1999. Lance was shot at point-blank range in the face. Later, Lance said he only remembered seeing blue sky above him, but felt his face being jolted and feeling pools of blood below his mouth. Just before he blacked out, Lance saw Danny take his last breath. Lance suffered from a total of five gunshot wounds. His jaw and face were rebuilt with bone and tissue from his leg, as well as titanium alloy to replace lost bone in his thigh and jaw. The process took nine operations. He was released from the hospital on May 15, 1999. On May 21st, he went with investigators to Columbine to do a walkthrough of the crime scene in hopes of remembering more details about the tragic day. He returned to Columbine the next school year, but was suspended due to sporadic attendance. He continued to hunt with his dad, Mike, and spoke up for gun rights in April of 2000 at a Denver town meeting on guns attended by President Bill Clinton. He and his father moved into a new house and got a new puppy named Hunter. Lisa Krutz was 18 in 1999. Lisa was hit several times, sustaining multiple gunshot wounds to her shoulder, hand, and both arms. She lay bleeding in the library for two and a half hours, unable to move due to the severity of her injuries. Before she was rescued by officials, she was the last survivor to be pulled from the library. Lisa was released from the hospital April 28, 1999. She graduated from Columbine High on May 23, 1999, and went on to the University of Colorado. She has never spoken publicly about what happened to her in the library on April 20, 1999.
Mark Kington was 17 in 1999. The gunman went over to the table where Mark was hiding and shot at him. Mark took a bullet to the head and one to the shoulder. The bullet in Mark's head was surgically removed. He was released from Denver Health Medical April 23rd with a bullet still lodged in his shoulder. Mark suffers from cerebral palsy. He has a twin brother named Mike. Mark graduated from Columbine High School on May 20th, 2000 and was planning to attend Arapahoe Community College. His mother, Kay, hopes that one day they'll find closure. There have been 377 school shootings since Columbine. More than 350,000 students have experienced gun violence in their schools since Columbine. One in every 10 gun deaths involves a victim who is 19 years old or younger. In 2022 alone, 34 students and adults died and more than 43,000 children were exposed to gun violence in their schools. We can spout facts to you all day regarding guns. What we do with these facts is what our children's lives depend on. We need change. We need our children to be safe in schools. And we need reform. And with that, crime fans, we will chat again next week. Thank you so much for being here today for part two. Make sure you send in your questions. If you haven't already, please subscribe so you can be notified every time we upload. If you enjoy listening to us every week, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love doing listener shoutouts, so make sure you leave a comment or a review for us. New episodes are released every Friday at 10.30 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. Please follow us on Instagram at Colorado Crime Pod or on Facebook at Colorado Crime Podcast and even on YouTube at Colorado Crime for information on next week's episode, as well as other true crime happenings. We hope you have a beautiful day, wherever you are, and as always, stay safe. Until next time, podcastians, have the weekend you deserve.